0: John Lewis & Partners offer quality, value and sustainable home collections all in one place. If you are an interior designer and want to hear about the exclusive trade terms available from John Lewis & Partners Business, email business at johnlewis.co.uk
1: Hello and welcome to the interior design business the monthly podcast produced by the interior design community for the interior design community. We're recording this episode in the sustainability studio of Parkside Architectural Tiles in Clerkenwell, and we're joined by an expert panel to explore interior design and the circular economy. My name is Jeff Hayward, and I'm here with my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of ToSuto Interiors.
0: In 2018, a major study concluded that the world was only 9% circular, with more than 90% of raw materials not being recycled back into the economy. At the same time, the world's population, life expectancy and affluence are all rising exponentially, and it's been predicted that the number of middle-class consumers worldwide will double to nearly 5 billion by 2030. These increasingly numerous and affluent consumers will place an even greater strain on the planet's natural resources which are already becoming scarcer, costlier and more difficult to extract. Clearly, for the health of the planet and the survival of the human race, we must become more sustainable and resource resilient. But how will this new thinking impact the sourcing and use of materials in the construction industry? How can interior designers embed circularity into their approach to design? And how can we best encourage our clients to embrace this new way of consumption? Welcome to the interior design
1: business. To help us find out the answers to these questions and many others, we are joined today by Jules Haynes from the Haynes Collection and Shalene Church from 540 World. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Before we begin, can you just briefly introduce yourselves?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm Jules Haynes, the founder and director of The Haynes Collection. Our mission is to reduce waste in the interiors industry, and we do this by reselling leftover fabrics, wallpaper, lighting, accessories, um, and reselling them on our website. So
3: I am a founding partner of 540 World and also design director of Free Space Design and a partner in a health clinic called Ergotech Health in London. We have been going 20 years or so with the health clinic and 540 World and Free Space Design are coming up for two years old and they both work in the sustainability arena.
1: What's the difference between 540 World and Free Space Design?
3: So Free Space Design is wholly my own practice and we look at interiors architecture and materials specifically So we look at healthy materials and circular materials, and we try to do what we call harm-free spaces in the commercial sector and in residential sector. Whereas 540 World tend to do more knowledge gap work, presentations, workshops, CPDs, and we work with a lot of infrastructure, so particularly the environment agency, and closing gaps on that side.
0: Could you start us off by perhaps telling us about what
3: actually is the circular economy? Yes. There are about 144 definitions, according to my partner, and growing. So I like to take quite a short one. Um, The circular economy is really restorative, systemic design. And that is for all materials and products to be optimized for all time in a closed-loop cycle, ideally. Now, that's not always the perfect definition. There isn't actually one. It's like sustainability isn't a perfect definition. But hopefully that gives you a starting point for today's conversation.
1: And could you give us an example of a a product that might be used in a circular economy?
3: Yes, if we look at a lot of the metals like aluminium and steel, I know that's not particularly a great one for the interior design aspect of things, but they are generally 100% cycled in a closed loop cycle. So they're seen as products that uh, we don't need to necessarily take out at a virgin level Um, for every project that we do because we have so much in the system. The previous model is sometimes called the linear economy or take-waste model, take-make-waste to be specific. And that has been the model for the majority of the industrial revolution up until now and will still be with us for a long time until people take on the circular design model. And an example to make that clear for people is making a plastic bottle out of virgin plastics and polymers for a single-use uh, water bottle, for example, and that might get recycled, but we know that uh, worldwide only 2-9% to 9% of the materials get recycled anyway, so it tends to end up in landfall or incineration, so that's a typical linear example.
1: Depressing. Really depressing.
3: And yeah. um, What is meant, by contrast, what's meant by um, cradle-to-cradle design? Cradle-to-cradle design is different to to cradle-to-gate, which a lot of people actually do know about. Uh, Cradle-to-cradle, in its most simplistic nutshell, is designing like a tree. So if we, and again, as I said, I'm being really simplistic, but it really makes sense then. If you imagine a tree and you have blossoms and leaves and things like that falling down over the different seasons, those tend to create nutrients and food in the soil. Then there's reuptake and that feeds the tree and so on and so forth. And then there's fruit, and it goes goes on in a perfect cycle. There's no pollution, there's no waste, there's no harm to the communities that live around it. So it's, again, it's a closed loop, um, restorative, regenerative, positive cycle for planets and people. And so is that what you mean by biomimetic? Is that the same thing? It's not entirely the same thing. Cradle to Cradle talks about two distinct different systems. One is the biosphere, which is where biomimetics and various different aspects fall under them. that's kind of a huge topic in itself. And then you get the technosphere, which is where technical products, phones, TVs, things like that will ideally be able to be reused, repaired, demountable, and, and, and stay in that closed loop infinite cycle if it's in a cradle-to-cradle system. So you can have the closed loop cycle in the technosphere with technical items, and you can have a similar Um, System in the biosphere cycle, which I gave the example of a tree. So, if you're looking at consumption, clothes, um, textiles, wood products, paper products, that would fall into the biosphere cycle. And again, the idea is also to use that without adding toxicities and chemicals that actually devalue the product and create waste and create toxins. The idea is that it's it's kept with high value with. None of those harmful things, and again, it's kept in a closed, clean cycle, yes.
1: So Jules, a lot of this has obviously been inspirational in the formation of the Haynes Collection. Do you want to talk a little bit about the impact of the circular economy on on what you're doing as a business?
2: We come into the um, circle at the end. We're the recycle part. So what we do is we collect leftover um, fabrics and um, products and wallpaper, etc. So really the interior designers can use us at the end, and they can start looking at their waste and seeing value in it and seeing that it's still got a second life and it can be rehomed. So when I started the business, I probably didn't know about phrases like cradle to cradle um, and circular economy. um, But I'd seen firsthand the waste in the industry. So I knew it was there. And I'd seen it. But nobody was doing anything about it and particularly they weren't doing anything about it in a beautiful way that would sit with the luxury interiors industry. So um, I started the Haynes collection to show that waste can be luxury waste, it it doesn't have to be a negative or a bad thing. And when I very first sort of floated the idea with, with my contacts, Um, and explained what I was doing he said to me oh so that's recycled fabrics and my thinking of recycled fabrics were the old school version of when it used to get chopped up and almost felted and then it was sort of stuck back together and then it was recycled which wasn't particularly attractive and so I said no 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 it's not this is not what I was doing he's like yeah but it is recycled and that was the moment in 2018 where I thought oh yes this is this is what I'm doing. This is part of what I'm doing. So without realising it, I was recreat- you know, creating this um, this recycling home.
1: Excellent. Is that a fairly commonplace way for a business to start in this industry? Do you think, Shirley?
3: I would say no. It's not a commonplace way to start. However, it's not a common. Is this commonplace? way of thinking and that people are noticing waste far more than they've ever done before. And um, like the Haynes Collection, if they've been in the industry for a while and they know the industry well, they tend to spot gaps in the market and and that whole supply chain. And those little gaps are um, increasingly critical, well they are they are critical for cradle to cradle thinking, which is all around reducing waste. The whole concept of waste is is um, it's not just reducing waste. Actually the idea is that waste is designed out of the equation from the beginning. So whatever you design, that entire life cycle, and it's not a life cycle because it's a reuse cycle, um, should, should be in that beginning set of thinking. And then it's also about celebrating diversity and what they mean by that is that not just um, flora or fauna but minerals and everything that we have on this planet should be realised that it's finite and we should use it appropriately, not just go, oh, well, we'll just willy-nilly use this and then dump it in, in, in inappropriate places later. So it's the diversity, it's the waste, um, and it's also the using appropriate renewable energies for the different systems that where we need where we need energy. So those are the three principles of Cradle to Cradle, that was the philosophy that started Cradle to Cradle certified and Cradle to Cradle
1: the framework. And I think it would be fair to say that lots of designers, if you work in this industry, are probably having the same emotional response that Jules had.
3: I would love to say yes, but I think Jules is still one of the few. <laughs> <laughs> so yay, Jules. Um, we we do we actually mentioned this earlier in a conversation that we finding that it's increasingly a heart issue more than a head issue. And we can sit and give everybody the catastrophic facts of the planet um, and social environmental. Aspects, you know, ocean acidification and all of those things. But at the end of the day, some people are like deer in the headlights when you give them those sort of um, bits of information. And there's also an increasing level of what can I do and how do I do it? Level of questions that are coming in. So Jules obviously spotted that. She had the question, she had the answer, and she just went for it. And you know, we appreciate companies like that. But there is, um, we call that reuse as opposed to recycling because. Jules isn't degrading her product in any way. She's keeping the value at the optimal um, level. It's not going to landfill. She's actually avoiding that recycling um, and landfill and incineration aspect. So she's even at a higher level, and um, we would call that reuse in, in sort of circular economy language. And that's the ideal place for people to, to try and keep the value of products and materials at that point for as long as possible. So I, I know the circular economy is conceived as a series of loops. Um, I just uh, what are the other
0: ones just because our audience may not be so familiar with the theory of it what are the loops in the in the circular economy
3: there are lots of different loops and depending on who you're speaking to if you're talking about talk, talking to economists they will have donut economics and different loops if you're talking to environmentalists and scientists like Johan Rockstrom they'll have planetary tipping points and all sorts of other very interesting important cycles so um, from the cradle to cradle perspective in terms of the principles and the thinking they like to avoid recycling because that, as I said earlier, degrades the product. And um, and even if you recycle wood and pulp and cardboard, there's a degradation, there's a percentage that's lost in that process. So even if you degrade a perfectly good piece of cardboard and reuse it, there's an amount um, that gets lost. So the idea is to try and upcycle, recycle. So some of those loops um, would be things like reuse, um, repair, recycle is the last one that we'd want to do, but keeping it in a, in a optimum use cycle is really so one of the ones sort of, that we that's, a, for. that's
0: kind of the outer loop, what you're exactly. really focusing on ideally is these new ones. Exactly. We, we did a, a, a hotel project a year or so back before lockdown um, where the client, we managed to source these rugs for all the hotel rooms, so there were 470 rooms, so we had 470 rugs and they were all made from fibre that was recycled plastic bottles. but. You're wincing at me, and I. But I agree. I completely agree because the the the, the reality of this. It sounded fantastic at the time, but actually they mark really badly. They don't um, last. They depress. You know, there's no resilience in the fiber, um, so they're not going to last. And so I said to the supplier, so what happens? You know, do they do they then get taken back and respun? And no, they go into landfill. So you know that recycling in that sense sounds great, but it's really not where we want to be.
3: I think that's a brilliant example and we see a lot of that. And I just thought, you know, we have to actually say it like it is. We you know, we especially in the UK, I'm South African, so I'm I'm more impolite than most. Um certainly more <laughs> impolite than, than, than Europeans and, and the good British. But the problem is that if people have good intentions and like you say, they spin rags out of plastic, we've seen the same with textiles, jewels has probably seen the same thing, gloves, jackets all made out of plastic. Um it's, it's taking a product that's designed for short-term single use, for example a milk bottle, that's not designed, the plastics and the pigments and the chemistry is not designed for clothing or longevity or rugs. So they have the best intentions and I respect companies that are trying those things because at least they're thinking out the box and they're trying to become circular. But it's really, it really brings us back to cradle to cradle. If that product is in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing and it's going to end up going to for all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. And at the end of the day, we know we only have around about a decade to get this right. And, you know, if we do those sort of things, we might push it down to you know, 12 years or something. But
0: I guess not only are you kicking the can down the road, but you're investing a whole lot of processing energy, chemicals, dyes, et cetera, et cetera, into the, and water use and everything else into the spinning and remaking. Correct. And so actually you've, you've consumed a whole lot of resources. To produce something that's fundamentally substandard and not fit for purpose. Correct
3: and that's why Cradle to Cradle is so profoundly different because if I jump forward and avoid the framework which is really the thinking that joins the philosophy into practice and that's another whole conversation but for today's perspective Cradle to Cradle certification or Cradle to Cradle certified products are products that are looked at from the principled perspective but they looked at for durability, energy, soil, water, all that sort of thing. So um, a cradle-to-cradle certified product will be certified looking at five different dimensions, and they call these um, categories, if you like. So they're called performance categories to be specific. So they will look at the air pollution, clean air, that whole stewardship and how, how, how that's optimized in the factory and beyond. They will look at social fairness, they will look at circularity, um, reuse, which we've spoken a bit about today, and again that's the closed loop cycles in the biosphere or the technosphere. And if you're mixing products, you might have some sort of um, timber mixed with some sort of metal, that's fine as long as it's demountable and still goes back into those cycles. So it doesn't mean that you have to have only biosphere products in one cycle and um, metals and technical uh, stuff in another cycle to make sense of it. And the last one is material health, which is all about the ingredients, um, which is absolutely critical before you can design a product. You need to know what its actual use is and also what its unintended use is. So if your rug is going to end up in landfill at the bottom of the sea, is it going to leach? Is it going to set off a whole degradation of nano, nanoplastics and microplastics and kill the fish or is it not? So cradle-to-cradle products are tested at um, parts per million at microbiological level so they're safe. So before it even gets to the circularity aspect or any of the other aspects, it's got to be materially safe. And this is why it's the, what, uh, what we basically say is the best certification in the world, because it's multi-sector, multi-category, and it's just profoundly different than everybody else is thinking.
0: So then just, just so that, again, our listeners really kind of get this, what's the difference between closed recycling, closed loop recycling, and open loop recycling?
3: There's a kind of a mixed sort of, um, mixed concepts going going on with that. Closed loop is really where whatever the product or material is, is able to stay in its cycle ideally infinitely. And as I, you know, I say infinitely, but there is always some type of degradation even in its use. Sometimes there's a bit of um, degradation, but generally speaking, it stays in that closed loop and can be used infinitely. So I used the examples of aluminium and steel earlier. Um, so that's an example. And then the open loop cycles are um, more linear in that they they might use recycling, which degrades the product, and ultimately the product ends up, if you like, still in a linear cycle, but just elongated, and it's not closed loop. So it's kind of op- opposite, really, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you give me some practical examples, Jules, of, of how you get product and then re purpose it for interior designers to to use again?
2: Yeah, well, interestingly, um, we get a lot of our product actually from interior designers. Um, A lot of our customers, I would say, are probably um, the retail clients. Um, But we offer a service where we make up um, cushions. So we will not cut into fabric to make cushions. We will collect any pieces that are an odd shape, um, that, you know, a triangle, um, and then make them into cushions so that um, interior designers, I know at the end of a project when you just need a few cushions to, 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 to put in there. Um, so we will actually, um, Put those ready on our on our website, but you can also buy um fabric by the meter as well, and all of that have be has been saved from projects. Um, whether it's a sofa that has been reupholstered, and there was you know three meters left, um, and um, ultimately um was discarded and often uh, <laughs> headed for the bin until we come along.
1: And you talked also about relationships with hotels that provide you with product.
2: Yeah, we um with. We're trying to spread, cast our net far and wide, and tell people about what we're doing because a lot of people don't know that there's another option than throwing it in the bin, and um, or incinerating it. Um, We have got starting to build good relationships with some some companies that make curtains and um, upholstery for big hotel chains. Um, Initially, our conversations with them were they were very honest with us and said anything under three meters, we put to one side and then we hire a skip and throw it away. Um, and we uh, obviously gasped when we first heard that. Um, but but we also understand, you know, we, this is a byproduct of what they do. Their primary is making and, you know, getting their product out the door. And um, what we're doing, even though now probably as you're hearing it, it sounds really obvious, but nobody's Doing it before, no, nobody's coming around going, Oh,
0: there hasn't been a central place to exactly. do it, is the problem. And yeah. it is a turkey because you have specified something for a project and it might be blue silk, just to, you know, the tra- you keep it in the cupboard and you keep it in the cupboard, but the chances of you coming up with another project anytime in the next decade that requires exactly Perfect. that same blue silk uh, zip, so you know, it hangs around and hangs around, and eventually you have to kind of think, Well, what am I going to do with this because it is a waste, yeah. You know, I personally have the most fabulous collection of cushions in my house because
2: I take the these bits home and I make them into cushions. But, you know, they, they, there is a limit to how many cushions one girl can have. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. And that's the feedback that, that we get. Um, and we've had a really positive, um, you know, since we've launched, we've just had some great support. And it's because I think the industry is really ready for what we're doing. Um, And as I said, it's not rocket science, but, you know, we're we're taking it on. um, And um, it's it's just really, really important because we all know every designer, um, maker, manufacturer within our industry says, oh, yeah, we have loads of waste. We have a cupboard that is just full of leftover fabric. You know, there are people who rent the storage space so that they can put their leftover exactly because they know that they're high quality they don't want to chuck it away um but they also don't know what else to do with it unless they put it on ebay or or something like that or or give it to a school um but then also if it's like you know silk that costs 300 pounds a metre, you don't really want to give that to a school (laughs) to be chopped up so um lots of people um just there wasn't as you said a central place um so that's what we're trying to do we're trying to our dream is to be easier than putting it in the bin we want to be the first people that you think of and we want to make it seamless and easy because I think that's another thing that holds people back is they're thinking what is the easiest thing for me what is the quickest route for me to get back on with my life and probably back on with my business because that's how I feed myself and my family you know that's that's their livelihood so um we try and make it as simple as possible, as flexible as possible, so that each individual, whether you're an interior designer um, selling a few meters that you've had left over from a project, or whether you're a manufacturer who have um, um, lots of three-meter pieces that you were going to throw in the bin, um, and you know we would um, we would work with them in a different way. But as long as it you know eliminates or reduces this waste, then we're happy. So I guess it
0: sounds very unglamorous and it's it's not a reflection, you know, your business has beautiful things in it, but you are in a sense a waste management organisation.
2: That's exactly what we are. And I almost like the fact that we're like a glamorous waste management. The most <laughs> yes, glamorous yes, exactly. waste management. Exactly. I was like, oh, I need some sort of gold boiler suit or something, you know. <laughs> um, but but yes, but I think that feeds into what I was saying earlier about, you know, our visions of waste historically has been rubbish, dirty, unwanted, um, should go in the bin, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, um, if we start looking at it differently, we will see that it's beautiful, it's got a second life in it, um, it can be rehomed. Um, so those are um, the sort of words that we, we put forward. And a lot of what we're doing um, is sort of educating people that, that um, there is an option and the, the plus point isn't just, you know, in our world, it's, it's for the greater good for the environment.
3: That circularity aspect is exactly why Cradle to Cradle have pushed that up their agenda, especially now for version four of the framework. And um, we, we call that resource management as opposed to waste management. And even the word of waste, like you mentioned earlier, it has got all these connotations and perception is really hard to change. So all that language we were speaking about it earlier. So resource management is how people are starting to speak about all of these resources, whether it's a small quantity or a big quantity. And all the companies in between are starting to kind of get this, that if their cardboard doesn't have sticky tape all over it and bad um, you know, bad pigments, that can be used and sold at a much higher level. So, um, again, bringing in the language, they speak about that as residual value.
1: I was just going to ask about the materials that manufacturers are now using. Are you noticing a change?
3: Yes, big yes. And um, I think incrementally that's going to change kind of, exponentially really. There are still some manufacturers sadly who are just disinterested um, and particularly if they've been in industry for a really long time and they've got big manufacturing facilities and they have a culture that is linear um, and the culture often is top down so those are the companies that are much harder to change and I think over time um, it's going to be the, the more agile competitors that become sustainable and become competitive, both in their products being sustainable, um, improve their reputation because they've got all those verified metrics, cradle-to-cradle certified, things like that. Um, I think those are going to be the pressure points that will actually change the linear economy manufacturers. But at the moment, there are there's a huge sea change, especially this last year.
0: But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that architecture, the actual building materials, are far more advanced in this realm than perhaps the things that interior designers are using you know we still seem to be hooked into this particularly the luxury end of interior design is still hooked into sort of you know digging priceless stone out of the ground and chopping it up and shoving it on people's bathroom walls and you know raping and pillaging small furry animals and you know all that kind of stuff just to just to, to satisfy the whims of some
3: wealthy individuals the, the point, though, is really valid that different industries are maturing at different rates. But having said that, we had um, a great conversation with one of the um, big design groups in in London who worked on the Shard and various other projects. I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether we're supposed to mention companies or not. But anyway, um, it was a fantastic conversation because they were looking at the interiors and their their big client had suggested they want to have sustainable products and they'd gone as far as saying they wanted verified sustainable, so not just greenwashing, et cetera, et cetera. And and we had a discussion about looking at cradle-to-cradle certified products. And of course then, the tension started because the designers had created some beautiful ideas, um, copper with lots of toxic chemicals to make patinas and things like that, and various other ideas which I had to say, there just isn't there isn't a cradle-to-cradle certified product in that realm yet. But there are alternatives, so we need to look at alternatives. So that meant the designer had to look at design changes. They had to go back to the client to see if they would agree design changes, whereas they had already agreed the design brief. So it became a bit of a tense dis- discussion. At the end of the day, it was, you need to go back to your clients and decide, are you going for the aesthetic and the budget, which is linear, or are you going to put it right in the design brief and not let that drop off with specification and aesthetics and you're going to make it verified, sustainable, and have that story at the end of your project. So there was that tension and I just said, I will not, I will not give you any contacts. If I know them. I won't give them to you if they're not cradle-to-cradle certified. I can't, I can't carry on promoting linear materials. And they went back and hats off to both the design team and the big tech company. They said, no, we'll make the changes and we'll keep with the sustainable verified products. And that, that took a lot, quite a lot of tweaking and in some cases, not the exact aesthetic they were looking for in some um, cladding and certain things, but they got, they got to a very close alternative and they will have a fantastic um, project at the end, which is verified, sustainable by cradle to, you know, through cradle to cradle material. So that's the long story, but yes, it's happening
0: you have to question why the interior designers were not doing a little bit of homework as they were specifying those products knowing
3: that that was the key part of the design brief from the client? You would think so but having been in the industry now just short of two years and I had the luxury of my masters where I could just research you know willy-nilly, finding cradle-to-cradle products is not easy and finding certified sustainable products is not easy. There's so much very very um, advanced marketing spiel out there that says it's sustainable when it's not. And they had actually done, to be fair, quite a bit of um, research and they had certain certifications that they were prepared to use and they thought were sustainable. But when they realized that, that was actually just cradle to gate and they...
0: Define what cradle to gate is?
3: Yes. So cradle to gate is a, again, it's a concept that um, defines the manufacturer's process where they take responsibility from... The processing in their factory until the product literally leaves their gate. So they're saying they're being responsible and they can even put eco-spin on that and say we're using you know, solar energy and we're doing this and we're doing that right, and we're socially fair, we've got no toxic chemicals and, you know in our processing, whatever. But what happens then is how they transport that, if they fly it or they do it by, you know, rail or, or sea or whatever, and various other different things that come into the equation can make that product completely carbonative or very, very carbon intensive. So by defining cradle-to-gate usually means that the company's not really being responsible um, holistically. And so cradle-to-gate can be uh, just a, a piece in the linear equation. So we tend to go, if it's cradle-to-gate, you're probably, you're probably missing information that makes it not good.
0: I'm guessing that cradle-to-gate means that perhaps it's it's great, when, it, as you said, as it leaves the factory. but perhaps they haven't thought about how the future life, you know, what happens to it after it's been installed, can it be stripped down, can it be demounted, can it be reused, recycled, upcycled? Exactly.
3: That's the the main uh, differentiation. There's a particular timber called a koya wood, which is actually manufactured in the North North Highland of New Zealand. And you'd think, oh, that means it's absolutely not a very carbon-positive product. But actually, out of when you compare it to traditional materials, and I'm talking about the UK, bringing it all the way through, and they, they do um, the, their acetylation patented part of it in the Netherlands, and then it comes into the UK, and they're global. But it's, it's one of the most um, carbon positive for the planet, if you like, timbers that are, that are out there in the world, which is why we've just done the world's first fender out of a coir timber in the Environment Agency as a world's first test to see if it actually works in a saltwater and a freshwater environment, good for microbes, all that sort of thing. So there's an example where if, if p- people were just thinking cradle to gate, they'd think well, you know, use New Zealand and can't be good after that. But they've actually looked at all the metrics and they've, they've refined that entire system so no matter where it lands in the world, it's absolutely um, the best of the bunch.
1: Interesting. What other materials should people avoid?
3: The short answer is anything toxic and anything that doesn't have Cradle to Cradle Certified on it. Um, However, we know that the entire supply chain, especially in the UK, is not complete in all sectors. So we would suggest Cradle to Cradle Certified as far as you possibly can. And I have to say that there are very few products um, that are missing in the supply chain now. We've got everything from insulation to engineered flooring to carpets to rugs to textiles to furniture to paint Um, there's very little that you can't find which is why we're working again with the environment agency because on big projects they can't afford to fiddle about you know if they're ordering huge quantities and things like that they need to know what they're getting they need to know it's durable high quality etc etc and um, we are now doing a lot of material swaps for them and so far I think we found one product in the last two years, which was only made in one factory in the world, which is not cradle to cradle, they have the monopoly and he's not interested in doing his fire cables. Um, but having said that, everything else is is almost there. Um, there are over, over 6,000 products now and then mostly in the built environment and consumer textile interior environment. I mean, anything that's finite is an obvious no-no. No, not really. because. Most of our materials come from some sort of natural space to start with. You know, they not kind of um, they come from the ground or from trees or or something. So our natural resources are really where it's our virgin source for for nearly everything anyway. But again, it's how is that stone processed? How much stone is available? Um, how much waste is used in the cycle? So there are some incredible um, companies that we're working with that are replanting entire areas changing the entire uh, systems of waste and wastewater and planting mountainsides again working with councils and talking about this is a, some particular spaces in Italy that that's this is happening in so there's a kind of a you know people tend to think plastics are bad and certain you know stone, don't touch stone. But actually, it's not really the product, it's, it's the whole entire system that you need to look at. And there are some fantastic stone products that are absolutely fine to use. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, you have to kind of get behind some of the myths and some of the thinking and, um, and, and source the product. If you want stone, it's possible.
0: But if you've taken your stone and you've cut it to fit a particular bathroom, let's say,
3: and somebody 10 years down the track wants to change their bathroom, that can't be reused. So it can actually be used. So what, um, especially with these AI systems that have been um, developed, and they very very smart systems. And it's quite a, as one of the world's first ones is a French um, AI called Upside Clear, and they will look at the material right from the beginning. So they have a materials library. So let's stick with stone. Um, so you might cut your stone, at, you know, sixty by, you know, three meters or whatever it may be. Um, standard kitchen counter whatever it may be um that if that's known and the dimensions are known and then you get to the next stage of of um reuse and that person wants to change their kitchen you know average six years is, is the sort of average turnaround time of interiors these days so in six years time they decide they want to go you know white to black or whatever it may be that material has not usually degraded in any way, shape, or form. So it's just like steel. It can and should be reused just like uh, Jules's company. Um, so if it's known, it can be reused in another kitchen. It might be a smaller kitchen, it might be slightly different shape, but again, that can be repurposed and reused ad infinitum if, 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 um, if the residual value is known, the place is known,
2: and
1: it's not just lost in the sort of grand scheme of things. How do you define what you're going to reuse and what you can't reuse?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, as a business, as yeah. the Haynes Collection, well, for me, I think that sky's the limit. You know, it's, uh, I have some lofty uh, dreams about what we could be, and I'd love to be doing stuff like that. I think at the moment people um just don't know where to go in the same way you know as, as you'd be you'd be ripping out that that bathroom going god what can we do with this uh i don't know we've, we've thrown it in the skip for the last 10 years so we'll just throw it in the skip it's fine but if you and, and obviously you know that there are amazing salvage yards and things like that um, and that, that you might be able to um give them to but from what i can gather it is more about the process it's easier to have a skip Sitting outside of your house, fill it all up with everything, and then it's done. So one of my many crazy ideas would be to be transport, to transport waste, whether, whether it be um, you know, um, stone or textiles, and be able to go around the country. You as an interior designer could call me and say, hi, we're, we're ripping out everything in this house. I actually had this, um, but it was actually just for curtains, but I had an interior designer contact me and say, this person's just bought a new house. Um, we are taking away all the curtains but the curtains are really beautiful and it's just it's not the look of the new um, residents um, we don't want to throw them in the skip is there anything that you can do so we've started collecting um, beautiful reusable curtains um, and the idea is to have a sort of Haynes exchange and um when anything that we're do- donated whether it be um fabric or these curtains um, we will give a proportion of the profits to charity because we've been donated it and you know as a business we, we give money to charity anyway but it just means that that for me is the first step into being able to help in all of these different areas and um, even though it's just me and the team at the moment um, I do have great hopes that we would be able to cope with something like that.
1: And a great business opportunity for others in other parts of the country to do exactly what you're doing, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a company called the Used Kitchen Company, um, and they do exactly that. They work with um, showrooms and people who want to move um, their kitchens um, on. Uh, and um, I think from my understanding is that they will offer to come and remove the current kitchen um, and resell it for you um, so that it's easier for you. Ultimately, everyone wants an easy life, so if it's easy for the interior designer, just for someone to come in, move on, and and they'll make sure it finds a new home.
3: Access and convenience is hugely important, and that's one of the things that we try to do with the Cradle to Cradle Directory, for example. Where we're building easy access for designers and architects to find the products, because if you make it too difficult to find them, or like you say, to you know resource resourcefully manage them at the end of its use cycle in, in the project, um, they will just resort to to the linear economy. And having said that. Um, what, you, what you're doing on a sort of micro level is really important because that's going to, ha- to for this to really work, it has to be local. If you're going to travel 30,000 miles to find a curtain, it's not going to work. So these little pop up micro businesses are really critical for going forward for all of these different things, as are the big AI platforms that make big projects manageable. So you know where your stone is, you know where your aggregate is. In, um, in the Netherlands, they've recently reused cement. Um, in, in a really big project as opposed to making a whole lot of new cement. They've actually chopped up the cement and reused it um, locally for, for a new project. So there isn't really any material that can't be reused unless it starts off as a really bad material with terrible toxins and things then, and, and you don't necessarily know what it is or you know you don't want to reuse it. So that brings us back to if the material health is good right at the beginning and you know what it is and it's verified, and then you can use it ad infinitum in different projects. So apart
0: from the office cradle-to-cradle certification, I'm sorry this open to either of you, what, in, what products should interior designers, what should they be looking for when they're specifying
3: things? When designers specify, we, we ask that they look more broadly. Um, obviously, we understand aesthetics and budget, so we can park that to the side. That's never going to change. That's always fine, but, you know, that's that's what they're meant to do. But if they look at the product in terms of its material health, so how does that affect the users, so if your sofa has got you know, formaldehyde in because it's made out of MDF board in the inside of it, that's not helpful. Whereas if you get a sofa that's made with a solid timber and FSC or a McCoyer base, that's absolutely fine, for example. Um, although we do have fire-retardant laws which do mean that we have other chemicals sprayed on our sofas and leathers, but having said that, there are still some really key chunks that you can take out of um, toxicity in the air and things by, by knowing what you do. So education is really important, educating your teams and pushing back on products and, and, and um, companies that come and say, you know, buy my sofa or buy my curtains or whatever, and they've got a mix of cottons and plastics and various other different materials. Ideally, if materials are in their sort of virgin state with not a lot of mixed chemistry or no mixed chemistry, that's usually the best. So if you can try and buy cotton rugs, for example, which are just cotton or just wool as opposed to cotton with a little bit of plastic and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, um, because again, that means the material is degraded, its value is is degraded straight away and you often can't reuse it because you can't split all of these materials um, in, in reuse. Sometimes you can, it depends on the combinations, but usually it's harder and more expensive. So the idea that if a designer thinks about that right at the beginning and thinks, I'm going to go for cradle-cradle-cradle-nose, i am going for non-toxic materials, I'm going for materials that are built in a way that don't... Um, off-gas is, is the term that, that leaches all these horrible chemicals into there. That's really helpful. And also, if you're going to design, think about how the, the material is made. We mentioned copper patinas earlier. There's nothing wrong with copper... But if you throw all sorts of horrible chemicals, then you've got to get a company to take away those chemicals in in the manufacturing process that gets dumped somewhere. Or, you know, it's 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 energy and it's emissions and it's just toxicity, which is not not necessary. And it's not only not necessary. We're in this critical phase where we actually have to say to the clients, you know what? I'll do that. I'll do copy in an etched way. I'll do layers of copper. I'll cut. You know, I'll do negative spaces. We'll design. You know, we'll maybe use different metals. Um, with spaces in between so we can dismantle that later. So we have to design a little bit more cleverly and a little bit more smartly, and we really need to think about what happens to this at the end of the day. How is it going to be demounted or deconstructed? I mean, they're even doing tiles today that are completely demountable. They're doing brickwork that is like Lego. It's called click bricks. You can just build it up like Lego and take it down whenever you want. And um, There's so many amazing, innovative products. So, you have to do a little bit more homework and contact companies like 540 World or Free Space Design, depending on your project, and say, I need this. Can you find it for me or find a close alternative? And there are companies like ours that will do that for you. So, two
0: things that come out of that one is the the things like what goes behind the tiles, it's the adhesive then that needs to be so that it's more like a, a, a post it note than a super glue, so that it can be pulled off and without damaging the tile. Because going back to the sole stone scenario, of course, you can't get stone off a bathroom wall generally. And then the other thing I was thinking was that a lot of interior designers will specify something, say, let's talk about carpets for a moment, they might do um, 90% or 80, an 80, what's known as an 80-20, where you have 20% polyester or a man-made fibre in with your wool because it makes it tougher, it makes it longer lasting. So, you know, what's the trade-off between having something that actually the client will have and keep for longer, but may not be so easily, may be degraded through that process. Where would you go with that? Which is the lesser of two evils?
3: The lesser of the two evils is making a product, no matter whether it's 10%, 5%, whatever it is, if it can't be reused and keep its value optimally, that's that's You've that's lost the it. more evil of the bunch, if if you like. If it lasts one year less or two years less, but it can be completely reused, and we don't need to use all those emissions again and go through all that factory processing, bringing it from one place to the other, you know, sharing the sheep again, whatever the case may be. All of that, those are costs. They real costs. And what happens is, in the linear industry, we kick those costs to someone else. The taxpayer pays for recycling, you know, systems that don't really work and cleaning up landfills and cleaning up soil and, you know, and next generations will pay too when they, when the scarcity means that they just run out of materials. So there's always a cost. So we just say the cost is going to be borne somewhere along the cycle, but make sure that your materials can be reused and stay in that optimal reuse cycle. And then you've you've kind of ticked a big box.
2: When you um, talked about your carpet, it also made me think about how, in your example, the carpet factory so the 100% wool carpet factory should offer some kind of repair service so it goes back into the design and and the repair side of things so what would be great in that scenario is that you could ring up you know whoever's provided your carpet and say we're getting a bit of a patch that's just outside the front door because that's the busiest place and they have something in place or they have designed it in a way that they can either replace it or hand re-sew something into it or just so that you can go for that 100% that you know is sustainable, but also that they have thought about that end of life and um, make it last longer.
3: And the sustainable market is incredibly innovative because they know they've got to compete with other products and whether it's luxury or durability, or they know that if they're going to come out the gate, they've got to come out with all of those things ticked, otherwise somebody's not going to buy their product. So what we found is most cradle-to-cradle products are best in sector. I mean, I, I literally can't think of one that isn't. So um, if we look at the carpet, for example, and um, thank you, Jeff, for allowing me to mention some names. Um, for example, Target, Deso, um, Shaw Contract do exactly that. They've got a full closed loop cycle. So we're in. The, in um, we're doing a commercial retrofit in London of a health clinic, and it's the first cradle-to-cradle multi-materials retrofit in, in the country. Um, and we've used Shaw Contract for that, very, for that very reason. They've got a, um, a carpet tile that can completely be, so like the front door, for example, you use that, a uh, you know, very practical example. In interior design, you, know, you have to be practical and functional as well as you know, beautiful. And these are brilliant. They can, they can get taken up at any point in their life uh, cycle and replaced completely um, without any uh, differences to dye and all that kind of thing. It's called no rules. Um, And it's absolutely brilliant. And not only that, they make it in Scotland, and so your emissions are completely low compared to a lot of other um, American-made and other um, Chinese-made and various other products. There's nothing wrong with the different territories, it's really just the emissions that come with that. So Shore Carpet, as I said, have got this great factory in Scotland. They've got an amazing range that's come out of that now. And it's really, really smart, so you don't lose anything. And that that carpet tile gets reused 100% again, no matter how much it's faded or worn down or whatever, which it doesn't fade. But anyway, um, it's absolutely brilliant. So these cycles are already actually fully formed with, with some of the more mature companies.
1: Where do people go to find out about Cradle to Cradle certification?
3: The, the fast track way is going directly to the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, who are the exclusive owners of the Cradle to Cradle certified mark. If you want to know more about the Cradle to Cradle Principles, that mark is owned by MBDC in the States, so mbdc.com. Whereas if you're in the UK and you're wanting to know about materials and how to access them, I would suggest that you speak to myself or 540 World because we've spent nearly two years collating and finding all of those access points, and the reason I say that is that when I finished my master's in interior architecture, I thought, oh, that's great, but like Jules, it can't be that hard to find this and find that. But it, it tr- truly was incredibly difficult because you have your manufacturers and then you've got your agents and you've got your distributors and it's a very complex cycle. And even if you go to the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, they've got a fantastic registry of products, which is a great place to look. However, if somebody has, let's co- let's say, 40 types of drain systems, you might find one picture of a drain system and you might find a certificate that says drains, blah bloody, blah blah You don't necessarily know how many other widgets they've got behind that. Um, so it's not always that clear, whereas we tend to know which factories are optimised, that if you need a widget that doesn't even exist yet, we know exactly who to speak to. We know the assessors and uh, most of them assessors around the world at Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute have licence to assess the products.
1: What advice would you have for interior designers who want to do better?
3: I think reading is a good place to start. Uh, one of the seminal pieces is a book called Cradle to Cradle Remaking the Way We Make Things by Bill McDonough and Michael Braungart. It is an incredible piece and it's it's head and heart. It's not a very sort of scientific book. It's not a very long book or big book. But it really is, um, it kind of explains things on kind of quite a deep level, so it's a great place to start. There's a huge amount of um, really smart um, material out there on Circular Economy and all of these different things. Ellen MacArthur Foundation, various other companies are doing great work in the industry. But if you're looking for materials and how to design differently... One of the starting points I would suggest is to call a group like ourselves in to actually do a workshop or a CPD, do some training because, like you were mentioning earlier, even in design, if you think, well, I'm going to cut the stone into all these little pieces and stick it all over the room, it immediately means that you've kind of made that stone single-use because it's very unlikely you're going to find another project, like we mentioned earlier, that's also going to want, you know, a myriad of little pieces of triangle-shaped stone. So even on the design uh, perspective, it's about how can I design this beautifully, functionally, on budget, but also in a way that those materials can have an optimal life cycle after they've been reused.
1: Question I was going to ask you, Jules, was what would make your life easier and your business life easier?
2: Um, I think what would make it easier if everyone knew that we existed, <laughs> ultimately. I think um, I think the industry is, really ready for what we're doing and um i think it goes back to what we were saying about education for me what the haynes collection does i think because our a large proportion of our customers are retail customers so we're doing that education with them at a lower le- not a lower level that's the wrong word but um maybe a more fun um less stats kind of like look I can remake with this and you know I do lampshade making workshops so that's encouraging people to be reusing um fabric and a scrap that they might come across and think how they can reuse it so there's there's that element as well but I think um what would make it easier is if everyone knew about us and then they just immediately thought, oh, why don't we just get in contact with them and, and see if they can help us. And with that mind change, they will start to see things that they'd never seen before. Just, just think how we used plastic bags five years ago. We didn't even think about it. We just go into the shop and we just take plastic bags. That's what we've always done. Um, but as soon as you start this education, you start this mind shift and for us, um, Because hopefully we're encouraging a mind shift um, with the people the interior designers are working for. Um, They will also encourage interior designers to say, actually, you know, I've hired you, but I would like to make sure that the fabric that we use is from here. Or I'm very happy for the lights to be secondhand from the Haynes Collection or or not not just pushing me, you know, someone else. Um, so um, I think, yeah, all in all, it is a mind shift. And, you know, this is why we're doing this amazing podcast as well, to, to help people um, understand. And, and I've learned loads just sitting here listening to you. I mean, it's fascinating. Definitely. Me too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jules and Shalene. That was just amazing. Um, I, too, have just learned so much. It's completely changed my thinking on how I'll be looking at Materiality and and the way we
1: design going forward. Me too, and I think we're on a journey with with this whole subject, with sustainability in general, but it feels like progress is being made. And I want people who listen to this to feel positive about the steps that can be taken. And you two are fine examples of that. So thank you for coming on the show.
2: No, thank you for having
1: us. Watch out too for links that we'll uh, put out there about this episode to help you find out more and um, yeah, let's, let's make this journey together. We'd like to thank Parkside Architectural Tiles for hosting us here at their sustainability studio in Clarkenwell. In the context of our discussion today, they are a company worth talking to. You can find out more about Parkside at parkside.co.uk. We'd also like to show our support for series partners, John Lewis and Partners Business, discover more about their service and what they're doing on sustainability too at johnlewis.com forward slash business finally do follow us on instagram and facebook at interior design business pod and on linkedin at the interior design business podcast this episode of the interior design business is a wildwood production